Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. At first glance, it might appear as though today's gospel lesson from St. Matthew is a mashing together of two different topics. The first part speaks of Christians as being the salt and the light of the world. And the second discusses the fulfillment of the law and possession of a superior righteousness. It seems as though Jesus is going off in two different directions. Christ does regard his people as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. In both descriptions, he indicates that we have a mission to others. The church, as the keeper and the dispenser of the gospel in this world, exists for the sake of the world. She has a large vocation, indeed. The whole earth is her field of work, and it is across the whole earth that she is to labor, not for her own ends, but to benefit mankind. As Christians, it would be a horrible error to reverse the position of Christ and behave as though the world existed for the benefit of the church. Although we primarily think of salt as a seasoning agent, and it is, its function since ancient times has also been to preserve that upon which it has been sprinkled from corruption. We live in a world that is constantly in danger of sinking into an abyss. Society is, is threatened with disintegration by conflict between classes, races, and religions. Family life is eroded by violence and irresponsibility. Art is defiled and beauty is supplanted by the celebration of evil. A purifying and preserving agent is needed. That's one of the functions of the church. God thinks this world is worth preserving. Otherwise, why salt it? Christ does not desire the destruction of civilization, but its preservation. And Christianity is not a system of skepticism or pessimism. Politics, commerce, art, literature, and science are all worth keeping from corruption. And Christians are needed to function in all of these endeavors. Salt is also an antiseptic. The church is expected to not be merely pure, but also to purify. This does not mean that the church should focus all of its energies and its resources on crusades against evil in this world, for crusades often turn in unhealthy directions on account of our own corrupt nature. However, the presence of spirit-led women and men in the world tends to keep it sound and healthy, if nothing else, by the silent influence of example. Recall, for example, how the old heathen world of the Roman Empire was rotting in vice when Christianity appeared and spread on the scene and infused a new life of purity into society. We cannot influence, or we cannot calculate the advantage to the world of the influence and the presence of pure-minded, earnest, unselfish men and women. Even a few such people, like a little bit of salt, can have an immense influence on the preservation of the best of society. <clears throat> Nevertheless, Jesus says that salt may lose its flavor. It may not have actually become corrupt, yet if it fails to perform its functions to season, to preserve, and to purify, 
both in salting the earth with the gospel and in leading the way in showing Christ's love, then the church would be a a negative or at least a, a neutral thing, useless and only fit to be cast away as so much dust. If the grace of God, if the Spirit of Christ, if the divine life all perish from the church, the institution may continue to exist, but its proper mission will have ceased. For the sake of the world, the spiritual vigor of the church must be preserved. It will not do for the church to become too comfortable, too friendly, too conciliatory to society. After all, the church is salt, not sugar. (coughs) Jesus also told his disciples in this text that they are the light of the world. Light banishes darkness. It reveals danger. It shows us the path to follow, and it cheers our hearts. All of these things, too, are expected of a Christian influence on the world. As a city on a hill or a lamp on its stand, Christians cannot be ashamed of their own confession. It is the church's duty to be prominent, not for her own sake or for her own prestige, but to spread the light of Christ. The light streams out to the nations by means of our gospel witness as well as our good works. Now, the world initially cares little for our words, but it does have a sharp eye for our works. The joy of the gospel must be written in the lives of Christians, that the world may see the reality of what we preach. The objective of our witness to Christ and our works of love is the glory of God. If we forget this, the church may drift off toward self-glorification. But our works are not to our own credit, because if they are good at all, then their goodness flows only from the grace of God. Therefore, we glorify God in bearing fruit, in living our lives so that His light shines out through our conduct, forming the sort of relationships in our lives that can lead to opportunities to show the life of Christ, the light of Christ, in its full glory, the glory of the cross before the glory of the resurrection. And then comes the seeming shift in Christ's message to us from the salt and light section to the fulfillment of the law section. But our God is not a God of random thoughts and ideas. He is a God of order and of purpose. And that includes weaving together His message so that it might benefit all who hear it and who read it. As we hear the attitude of our Lord toward the Old Testament here, we ought to realize that it is by His law that He accomplishes several purposes. In theological terms, we know that His law has three uses, even while it is one and only one law. You may recall these uses from your confirmation classes. The first use is a curb against sin, giving us and all people safe boundaries within which to dwell. In the second use, the law works as a mirror, reflecting our sin so that we might be both ashamed and fearful and driven toward repentance that allows faith to enter in, grants us forgiveness, and restores us to fellowship with God and with one another. And in its third use, the law serves to guide us in living out our vocations in faithfulness to God and in love toward our neighbor. Now, Jesus did not need the law applied to him in the first or the second uses, but he did live a sinless life 
by showing us how the law works in its third use, guiding and directing the righteous. As he said in his own words, Jesus did not come to destroy the ancient teachings of the law, but to fulfill it. Like we have learned in Luther's elaboration on the Ten Commandments in the small catechism, Christ's own words show two positions, a negative and a positive aspect of the law. We know and trust that the Old Testament was inspired by God. It records the words spoken to Moses and the other prophets. And words of God are not to be lightly set aside, no matter how ancient they may be. No matter how seemingly quaint the ideas may sound to our postmodern ears. Even though the Old Testament is only the preliminary revelation of God's message of salvation, it is not a less real revelation. The truth it contains is partial only in the sense that it represents an earlier stage in understanding God. Yet all truth still has an eternal element to it, the essence of which we may discover when we strip off the husk of its temporary form. The Old Testament is a grand testimony to righteousness. We can never dispense with the Ten Commandments. The stern warnings of the ancient prophets against both individual and national sin still stand as good today. They are the utterances of a divine and eternally given conscience. If there are any shortcomings for which we can criticize the Old Testament, it is only that in predating the coming of the Messiah, it is not a complete revelation. Even so, a great many people found it to be fully sufficient revelation for receiving the gift of faith. The reception and the acceptance of God's promises for a rescue from sin, death, and the devil whispered through the trees in the Garden of Eden. They floated with the waterborne ark. They glistened in the uncountable stars above Abraham's head. From our perspective, the Old Testament may seem to be an insufficient revelation of God, but it was only defective by omission. It could not contain all truth because when it was written, the Jews were not ready to receive all truth. But these are not reasons for rejecting the covenants God gave there. The child is not to be blamed because he is not yet a man. Even so, the adult cannot afford to ignore or neglect the child on account of his immaturity. The child is still a prophet from whom much can be learned. It cannot be denied, though, that he lacks the, large, the man's larger wisdom and the more enduring strength. The righteousness of the law, however, is not sufficient for us. It cannot create goodness in us, for its direction is formal and externally applied. The deeper, the more spiritual righteousness can only be realized when the law is written upon our hearts. And this is done, as Jeremiah predicted, only under the new covenant. In Jesus, any deficiencies that we might perceive in the Old Testament revelation are fleshed out, literally. He not only fulfills prophecy by doing what it predicted, he makes the whole revelation of God perfect by filling in the gaps in the Old Testament. The law is not perfected until its inner meaning is discovered and its living spirit is brought forth. Jesus brings us from a mere understanding of the letter of the law to a genuine grasp of the overarching intentions of the Spirit. The law had never been kept perfectly 
until Jesus Christ came. He was absolutely faithful to it, and thus He satisfied its demands. This was not done primarily for example, however, but as a gracious and a necessary gift for us who are morally, ethically, and dutifully poverty-stricken. To any extent that it may keep us, or any of us may keep the law, it is not by our own doing. It is purely by the work of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. By stating that the law would not perish until all had been fulfilled, Jesus indicated that not that it passed away upon his death, which accomplished our salvation, but that it remained in effect for the benefit of all mankind until all of God's promises came to pass on the last day. He included the Old Testament and the guidance of the moral law in his new revelation of the gospel of the kingdom of God. It is here that we come to Jesus' last statement in this day's gospel reading that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This might seem very discouraging to us at first, for we know that the scribes and the Pharisees strove mightily to be righteous. Yet they strove for a self-generated righteousness, a following of guidelines that they had crafted and rationalized so as to make them seem achievable lulling themselves into a false sense of spiritual security. Jesus tried to dispel the fog that they had spewed around themselves, but for the most part, they clung to that with which they had grown familiar and comfortable. They rejected the true comfort that we know, the comfort that Christ alone has fulfilled the law for us. We point to His righteousness and not to our own, as the certainty of our adoption as sons and daughters of the Father. He is the only sure hope of our reconciliation with God and the promises of blessing and eternal life. This does not mean that we reject the law, for if we are brothers and sisters of Him who fulfill the law, we too are to love the law and to seek its fulfillment to the extent that His Spirit guides us and enables us. Antinomianism, that is, the rejecting of the law of God, is a distinctly unchristian attitude. If Christianity is to be found in the teachings of Christ, then Christianity does not relax the moral law. On the contrary, it elevates and it strengthens the law. We cannot make a greater mistake than to suppose that the grace of Christ makes a certain easy treatment, any reduction of duty, any release from the obligations of the right. Forgiveness is not a pardon of the past with an indifference toward the future. Instead, Christianity and the faith in Christ that we believe, teach, and confess makes God's forgiveness the solid foundation and prepares us for a new and better life in the house of the Lord. More is expected of the Christian than of the unbeliever because we have the Spirit to guide us and to strengthen us. Greater are the responsibilities of the convert than the unrepentant sinner, for we know the Lord. Thanks be to God that He made us His own through the blood of Jesus, and that He empowers us to be the salt and the light of the world. Jesus is true and real. He expects a genuine righteousness. He will not endure the mockery of those who profess what they do not do. 
Yet righteousness consists not just of deeds of the hands or words of the mouth, but the thoughts of the heart as well. Christ looks for that inward righteousness, the pure heart. He forbids hate as murder. He forbids lust as adultery. The law deals largely with the negative. Its refrain is, thou shalt not. But Christ expects a positive goodness in us, a spirit of living energy, love and its outflowing activity of service. It may seem then that Jesus is laying a heavy yoke on our shoulders. Is this consistent with his gracious promises and his gospel invitations? Why would he do such a thing? When we look at the lofty standards that Jesus gave in the section just prior to this text and the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, we have to consider his reasons for requiring seemingly impossible things. But we see that it is good to be righteous. For this means a higher joy. It is Jesus who is the light revealing that fuller righteousness, teaching it to us in his words, illustrating it by his conduct. The law cannot secure righteousness. Only the gospel can do this. Christ brings to us a God-made righteousness, and he gives us the power to be all that he expects us to be. His demand is only that we not frustrate this working of the Spirit in us. In this, his yoke is indeed easy, and his burden is light, for he has pulled a load, and he has carried the burden for us, giving and sustaining our faith in him through the uplifting gifts of his word and sacraments. Our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees because he has taken away the crushing burden of our sin, and he has given us the perfect eternal righteousness, his righteousness as our own. His salt of purification becomes ours to spread, his the light of the world, ours to shine forth. May he keep us faithful in our calling to be his salt and his light to the world until all is accomplished to the glory of the Father who awaits us in the kingdom of heaven. In his holy name. Amen. We rise and join in confessing our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. <clears throat> 